Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm very impressed that this is the third largest um, NABE chapter in the country. Um, I've actually spoken at the other two. One, uh, the one in New York, um, meets in sort of a, it's an Ivy League university club on 44th Street. Kind of, you know, a little shabby. You know, kind of run down, sort of old money kind of thing. The Washington one meets on the second floor of a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> so you may be third in membership, but I think you're number one <laughs> on things that count. <clears throat> I've given a fair number of speeches in Charlotte um, in the two and a half years since I became president through my current position. And... Um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a speech across, some remarks across the, speech, uh, across the street at a conference um, we sponsored. Uh, in fact, I think I've given more speeches in Charlotte than a lot of other um, cities, any other city in my district, except maybe Richmond. But I want to I state categorically, there's no truth to the rumor uh, that an imminent move of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond to Charlotte is Right out. I'm not doing that. Um, it's a real pleasure at this event to hook up with Enrique Sanchez again um, and uh, to reminisce about the old days at uh, WIFA. Uh, that was my first, I think it was my first professional gig in economics. I was uh, right out of Franklin Marshall as an undergrad with an econ degree and uh, went to work as a research assistant, as he said, punching cards and um, building models and maintaining big models and doing, doing business economics, essentially, and that's where I learned first came into contact with the field, or as we now like to call it, applied macroeconomic analysis. Uh, Wharton Econometric Forecasting Associates, uh, a nonprofit association, that was its full title. We took the nonprofit part very, very seriously. In fact, I think we lost money every year I was there, and for years beyond, and it was subsequently caught up in a wave of mergers and acquisitions in the, you know, econometric consulting uh, industry, and I think it's now part of what has become Global Insights. Is that right, Enrique? Um, so I left, I left Lisa to go to graduate school uh, at the University of Wisconsin and uh, spent years sojourning in uh, theoretical fields of economics. But lo and behold, I'm back doing business economics. And I'm not sure what lesson that illustrates what goes around comes around, maybe, or uh, um, or that you know that line from The Godfather, you know, keep getting me back. Um, but whatever, in any event, it's a pleasure to be here doing what I am, and it's a pleasure to speak to you. Obviously, a vibrant, and very healthy chapter. What I'd like to talk about today is the relationship between inflation and real economic activity. And for convenience, I'm just going to talk about real economic activity, summarizing the word unemployment. Uh, it's sort of the key indicator and one everyone refers to. And I'm going to start out by telling you about some recent experiences. Um, a couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to guest teach a couple of business school economics classes. <coughs> I opened the discussions with a pair of questions. And I asked students to put themselves in the place of a monetary policymaker choosing a target for the federal fund rate. First, I gave them a set of hypothetical facts about the economy. A slowdown in housing in the wake of a multi-year housing boom, rising mortgage default rates, preliminary indicators of a slowdown in business investment. And then I asked them, what are you going to do? 
some, a friend of mine told me, you got to get in their face. What are you going to do? The students dutifully responded that uh, the situation would call for a reduction in the federal funds rate. So evidently, they'd been doing their homework. Next, I gave them a set of hypothetical facts about inflation. Core personal consumption expenditure inflation on a year-over-year -year basis had been about 2%, over 2% for nearly three straight years. After some signs of moderation, recent month, uh, month's inflation numbers have moved higher. Energy prices have been fluctuating around historically elevated levels, and labor consumption is rising after a relatively flat period. Same question again, what are you going to do? Once again, their response came right out of the textbook. An increase in the funds rate is needed to counter rising inflation, other things equal. The trick is, of course, that both descriptions, both sets of hypothetical facts, are drawn from the same period, basically right now. My objective was to underscore for them the fact that sometimes monetary policy decisions are not obvious, and that figuring out the appropriate course of policy depends on as complete a picture as possible of the current state of the economy, and that interpreting and drawing policy conclusions from that picture uh, can be a challenging task. The situation I presented to those students represented a policy-making dilemma. The actions needed to bring down inflation could work against our desire to see real economic outlook solidify. The facts would appear to present a policymaker with something of a trade-off. You can address one, inflation or, or real growth, but, but each one, addressing either one of them puts the other at risk. The obvious approach, one obvious approach, might be uh, to decide how much weight one puts on each and low inflation or low unemployment, and then try to conduct policy so as to minimize the weighted average of the two. So then it's a matter of picking the weight. There's a superficial attraction to this approach to uh, the situation. It's a popular approach, uh, one that views this as a simple trade-off each period. But that characterization is also, I think, um, an extreme oversimplification and dangerously misleading at times. And I'll try and explain why today. So I said I'm going to devote my remarks to the relationship between inflation and the real side of the economy, unemployment, and to what I think that relationship implies for policymaking. In case you're not familiar with my voting record, I have to say that, as always, the views expressed are my own and not necessarily the same as others in the Federal Reserve System. Unemployment and inflation have together been at, really at the core of macroeconomics for at least as long as there's been a field called macroeconomics. The relationship between these two variables is usually summarized by what's called the Phillips curve, named for A.W. Phillips, an economist who in 1957 documented an inverse relationship between unemployment and wage inflation in nearly 100 years of data for the United Kingdom. But the notion that rising inflation might at times be associated with uh, rising real growth and falling unemployment had been recognized and discussed by very early economists, a fact that's been emphasized by many scholars. Since Phillips' original paper, the cur this curve, that has been come to name after him, played a critical role in the evolution of thinking about macroeconomic policy and monetary policy. It captures the notable correlations between inflation and unemployment. And although those correlations can vary over time in important ways, 
But more importantly, it embodies in a compact way our theoretical understanding of the interplay between inflation and real economic forces. Because of its importance, because it's so central to monetary policy, uh, and because modern versions of the Phillips curve, our, our, our modern understanding of the Phillips curve is in some respects starkly different from the earliest editions, I think it's worthwhile to briefly review some of the history of the Phillips curve before examining the role that our, our modern understanding of this relationship plays in thinking about monetary policy. To begin then, the Phillips curve began as an a-theoretical, non-theoretical relationship drawn to fit some statistical data. The form with which people are most familiar, uh, linking unemployment to price inflation, was first set down in 1960 by the famous economists Paul Samuelson and Robert Solow, themselves also Nobel laureates. Following Samuelson and Solow, the Phillips curve began to be interpreted as describing a set of choices available to society each time period. According to this view, if the data suggested that price stability tended to coexist on average with 5% unemployment, we would have to live with higher inflation, above price stability, in order to enjoy unemployment persistently lower than 5%. But we could do it if we were willing. This led to descriptions of policy as either stimulating real activity at the cost of higher inflation or fighting inflation by restraining real economic activity. This understanding of the Phillips curve seems to have contributed to the political sentiment that, at least when inflation was relatively low, the costs of a little more inflation were worth the return in reduced unemployment. But an alternative understanding of the Phillips curve was emerging in the 1960s. Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps, themselves both Nobel laureates, separately focused on the role of expectations in the relationship between inflation and unemployment. Specifically, they argued that while inflationary policy actions that were not anticipated by the public could have a temporary stimulative effect on the economy, fully anticipated inflation should not and would not affect real economic activity. Similarly, surprise disinflation could have a temporary contractionary effect, but fully anticipated disinflation would not. This meant that the observed correlation in the data between inflation and unemployment must have come largely from episodes in which changes in the inflation rate were not expected by the public. According to this uh, so-called inflation, uh, I'm sorry, expectations augmented Phillips curve that they developed, changes in inflation um, and by implication changes in monetary policy could not have persistent lasting effects on real economic activity. Over the medium to long run, economic growth and unemployment would tend to return to rates that were determined by productivity growth, uh, population dynamics, and other characteristics of the markets for goods and labor. For example, a sustained effort to reduce unemployment by maintaining inflation at 5% say would ultimately lead the public to adjust their expectations for inflation. In the long run, unemployment would rise again to its natural level, consistent with the real structure of the economy. Monetary policy, in their view, and, and I think this is a broad consensus now, can only have a transitory effect on unemployment. In retrospect, many observers have labeled the Friedman self-analysis prescient. They point to the 1970s as confirmation of the implications of the expectations augmented Phillips curve because the period of high and volatile inflation in the 1970s 
brought no sustained improvement in real economic activity. In fact, and not coincidentally, the general performance of the real economy during that period was relatively poor. The analysis of Friedman himself focused attention on the critical macroeconomic role of expectations. They assumed what's called adaptive expectations, meaning that households and firms base their expectations of future inflation pretty much based on just observations of recent past inflation. As an example, models of that era frequently represented inflation expectations as a simple weighted average, moving average, of past recent past inflation. In this view, an increase in the inflation rate may catch people by surprise, but over time they'd learn about the altered policy stance. But why wouldn't people try to look ahead and foresee what the central bank was likely to do, rather than uh, rely on a mechanical adaptive expectations forecasting formula, like the one I've described? In 1972, Robert Lucas, another Nobel laureate, just talks full of them, provided an alternative uh, rational expectations, it's called analysis of the relationship between inflation and real economic activity. Under rational expectations, people's expectations are based not just on their past observations, but also on their assessment of how the economy is likely to behave, including their knowledge of the process driving policymakers' choices. The rational expectations analysis retained the Friedman Schultz implications that only unexpected inflation would be associated with falling unemployment. But rational expectations implies that the public's reaction to policy is more forward-looking than in the case of adaptive expectations. Later in the 1970s, Finn Kidlin and Ed Prescott, they also recently received the Nobel Prize in Economics, built on Lucas's work and analyzed the problem faced by a policymaker when the public is forward-looking. They studied the temptations faced by a central bank choosing policy on a period-by-period -period basis. In any given period, what the public expected the central bank to do has already been determined. To water over the dam. Given those beliefs, the policymaker can pull down unemployment with a little more unanticipated inflation. But people understand that the policymaker is going to be tempted to induce unanticipated inflation. And thus, they don't believe prices will be stable. The inflation that the policymaker is tempted to induce and does induce will be actually anticipated. The result is higher inflation, but no gain in real activity because people anticipated what the policymaker was going to have the temptation to do. What the policymaker would like to do is find a way to commit, commit to price stability, and thus commit not to give in to the temptation to attempt to reduce unemployment by inducing unanticipated inflation. The work of Kiblin and Prescott thus highlighted the role of the central bank's credibility. In other words, the extent to which the public believes their commitment to price stability. Their work highlights as well, and this is a real key point about credibility and commitment, highlights as well the extent to which establishing credibility requires. Indeed, it is virtually identical to sacrificing future flexibility. So there's no such thing as credibility or commitment without sacrificing future flexibility. The linchpin, then, of the link between inflation, unemployment, and monetary policy is the public's expectations about inflation. 
if a run-up in inflation has been correctly anticipated, then it will have little or no effect on unemployment. And similarly, if people expect falling inflation, then employment will not increase as much as it would if the disinflation were unanticipated. Thomas Sargent, I think he's going to get the Nobel Prize, but he hasn't yet. <laughs> Demonstrated this dramatically in his analysis of the ends of hyperinflation in a number of countries. Very large reductions in inflation were achieved at much less cost than would be predicted by the standard Phillips curve when those reductions in inflation were part of comprehensive packages of monetary and fiscal policy reform. The role of expectations figured very prominently in the disinflation that took place in the early 1980s under Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. The Fed had delayed taking strong action against inflation in the 1970s before Paul Volcker took office, in part out of a belief that the slope of the Phillips curve was such that a fairly large increase in unemployment would be required to reduce inflation. Again, looking at that statistical correlation between inflation and unemployment, they interpreted it as how much unemployment they would have to endure in order to reduce inflation. The cost of the Volcker disinflation turned out to be substantially less than predicted by that analysis. The recent release of the Federal Open Market Committee transcripts from that era revealed very vividly how the public's expectations regarding inflation were really front and center, quite prominent in the committee's deliberations during that period. A lot of discussion, a lot of give and take about how to get inflation expectations down, a lot of frustration that those expectations weren't coming down, that they weren't credible, that their, their announced intention to bring inflation down wasn't being believed right away. Prior to the 1970s and the 1980s, a significant methodological divide separated macroeconomics and what's called microeconomics. That divide broke down when economists learned how to study models of the aggregate economy that were built on sound microeconomic foundations, meaning uh, there are explicit, there's an explicit account of individuals' choice about consumption, savings, individual uh, firms' choice about investment, hiring, output, and so on. In other words, general equilibrium models. And these aggregate, they, economists learned how to build models grounded at that that fundamental level, but indeed capable of explaining aggregate business cycle phenomena. Doing that, addressing macroeconomic issues with models like this, required models that were dynamic because investment and interest rates and consumption and savings decisions are really central to macroeconomics. And it required building models that were stochastic as well, in which uncertainty played a, an important role because business cycle fluctuations seem to be, to some extent, unanticipated. The first generation of such models had no substantive interaction between inflation and real economic activity, and they displayed business cycles that were driven entirely by real phenomena, unanticipated shocks to productivity, oil price shocks, um, technological advances, things like that. The challenge was to build models grounded at that level that captured in a, a, in a, a, a non-trivial way, the inflation and unemployment link. Uh, in a non-trivial way, but in a way that was compelling, persuasive, and understandable. The modern Phillips curve, the way we understand it now, emerged out of one approach to understanding the links between inflation and real economic activity in, in such well-grounded models. The approach involves specifying price-setting friction, cost, 
disutilities of changing prices. It makes the firm's, a firm's choice of the price of its good an inherently dynamic decision. And it has the effect of making those decisions depend on expectations of future inflation. In addition, this approach relies on a monopolistic competition feature, because otherwise, under perfect competition, nobody has any flexibility in setting their own prices. So there has to be, in these models, a little bit of pricing power, at least a little bit of opportunity to push your prices up a little bit and not have this, your demand totally evaporate. Under common forms of this friction, only a fraction of sellers reset their price each period. Thinking ahead, anticipating the length of time before they would reset their price again, sellers are going to choose a price that depends on what they think will happen to the overall level of prices during that interval. So they're going to look ahead because the price, they're going to want to care what the real relative price is over the course of time during which that price is set. So you imagine a, you know, a trucking firm posting a pricing list or at the beginning of January, and they're, they're not going to reset the price list until June. They're just going to live with it for six months. They don't want to tick off their customers with a uh, new pricing list every other month. Uh, so they set their pricing list every six months. But they have to take into account, what is a dollar six months from now going to be worth to me and worth to my shareholders? If you aggregate across sellers making decisions like that, you can distill things down to an equation that says that current prices and thus current inflation depends on expected future inflation. And the intuition should be clear. Money has value only because of what it can purchase in the future. So the value money has today is going to depend on the value people expect it to have in the future. So current inflation is going to depend on expected inflation. Simple, clear intuition. In this class of models, current inflation also depends on real economic variables, particularly the real marginal cost of production. And that's because relative prices, remember this trucking firm is setting its relative price, so its real price, depends on, uh, it's set essentially as a markup over its production cost, its marginal production cost. Under certain heroic assumptions, that won't be discussing today, a one-for-one -one relationship emerges between real marginal cost of production and a measure of the scale of aggregate economic activity, like output or the unemployment rate. In that case, you get an equation you could describe as a Phillips curve because you've got current inflation and it relates to current real ac economic activity, but it also relates to expected future inflation. And that the introduction and the form in which expected future inflation affects and mediates this relationship between current economic activity and current inflation, that's the key. And that's the difference between the modern Phillips curve and, and our simple version that our, my, my business school students were tempted to work with. Um, in fairness, although this is, approach has broad acceptance, I should note that it's not without its critics. Some economists view the price-setting friction to the core of this approach as somewhat ad hoc. And moreover, there are alternative frictions, uh, such as spatial separation and limited information, that can also rationalize monetary non-neutrality. Nevertheless, a Phillips curve derived from price-setting frictions, the way I've described, is the leading model uh, for applied central bank policy analysis. It's the dominant approach today. There's no question about it. This modern form of the Phillips curve closely resembles the expectations augmented Phillips curve I discussed earlier. 
and thus share as many of the same properties. For example, a movement in inflation will be associated with a movement in unemployment only if inflation is different from what the public expects. Furthermore, inflation expectations in these models are forward-looking, like in the rational expectations world. So expected inflation, just like inflation itself and unemployment, is an endogenous variable. That is to say, it's determined by what people think the conduct of monetary policy is going to be. When economists take this new modern Phillips curve to the data, they often find that past inflation enters significantly in the equation, that it helps, that past inflation helps explain current inflation and current real ac economic activity, even attempting to control for expected inflation. And this finding has led some to formulate versions of the Phillips curve in which both forward-looking and backward-looking price-setting behavior play a role. Backward-looking price-setting uh, behavior is assumed to take the form of expectations that are a weighted average of past inflation, consistent with the old adaptive expectations assumption that I described before. In these so-called hybrid Phillips curves, the extent to which price-setting and expectations are backward-looking can matter a great deal for monetary policy. And as a result, there's a small cottage industry of economists, some of them may get the Nobel Prize, uh, that's now devoted to estimating hybrid Phillips curves uh, to try and find the appropriate weight to put on backward-looking price settings. Common estimates are that around 25% of agents form expectations in a backward-looking fashion, although estimates of up to 60% have been obtained. Many such estimates, however, assume that the conduct of monetary policy has been constant over the period that generate where they're looking at the data, the, 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 the period in which the data they're looking came from, in the sense that the policy was guided by a single consistent pattern of behavior. If instead one allows for the possibility of shifts in the pattern of monetary policy, then the estimated weight on the backward-looking component in the Phillips curve turns out to be much lower, in fact, usually around zero, usually fairly close to zero. And the intuition for this is fairly straightforward. If you think about what happened in the 70s, 50s and 60s, low inflation, end of the 60s, rising inflation, 80s, shift in policy, inflation came down under Volcker and Greenspan. By not allowing persistent swings in monetary policy in their estimation approach, the standard approach mistakenly attributes inflation persistence to the backward-looking expectations part of their equation. The observed persistence in inflation thus might arise from forward-looking behavior instead, coupled with uncertainty in the public's mind about the conduct of monetary policy trends. If people are uncertain about policymakers' behaviors or objectives or strategy, then their inflation expectations are going to adjust slowly as they learn about these features of policy by observing actual policy outcomes. While there's reasonably strong statistical evidence of shifts in monetary policy, the premise that inflation expectations are forward-looking and that the conduct of monetary policy has evolved over time is broadly consistent with the post-war history of U.S. monetary policy. As an aside, that history is intimately intertwined with our evolution, with the evolution of our understanding about the relationships embodied in the Phillips curve. Widely held views about the Phillips curve in the 1960s suggested that tolerating a small amount of inflation would allow permanently lower unemployment. As inflation trends steadily rose into the early 1970s, the public came to expect higher inflation to persist 
and the Phillips curve itself shifted out, that simple relationship shifted out. Policymakers had overlooked the endogeneity of inflation expectations and their influence on future inflation outcomes. In the 1970s, policymakers were reluctant to attack inflation aggressively out of a belief based on estimated slope of the Phillips curve that high sustained unemployment would be required to reduce inflation. Belief in backward-looking expectations led policymakers to underestimate the extent to which they could influence the evolution of expectations and thereby reduce the cost of disinflation. Unemployment did increase during the disinflation that Chairman Volcker initiated in 1979, but by substantially less, as I said, than had been predicted by backwards-looking pollsters. On several occasions after the Volcker disinflation, these are occasions identified as in inflation scares by my former colleague, Marvin Goodfriend. I'm not sure if he's going to get the Nobel Prize. But he's a good economist, nonetheless. Inflation expectations rose, and the Fed responded aggressively by raising real interest rates above what otherwise would have been warranted. These episodes helped gain credibility for the Fed's commitment to low inflation. Realized inflation fell in the 1990s. Between November and 1995, for example, and March 2004, except for a brief six-month period around 9-11, 12-month core PCE price inflation was between 1 and 2 percent. The stability of inflation expectations at low levels was crucial to that success. So, I've given you an overview of the evolution of economists' theoretical understanding and empirical understanding of the Phillips curve, that is, the links between inflation and unemployment. To briefly summarize, the, P, the Phillips curve began life as an atheoretical relationship drawn to his fifth historical correlation. It then became a static menu of inflation and unemployment options available to policymakers, but that approach neglected dynamic, forward-looking nature of the decisions underlying the observed statistical relationship. The static Phillips curve broke down in the late 60s and 1970s, just when policymakers began to rely on it. In fact, probably in part because they began to try and rely on it. The Phillips curve relationship was rebuilt from the ground up in the 1980s and 1990s. The resulting modern Phillips curve um, has forward-looking expectations of price setters, and those expectations play a dominant role in the, in the inflation dynamics. The modern Phillips curve has several important implications, some of which have, in my view, not um, yet fully permeated uh, the conventional wisdom of those who follow and comment on monetary policy. First, the conduct of monetary policy is a pattern of behavior. It's best thought of as a pattern of behavior, a rule in the broad sense, not necessarily an algebraic equation. In contrast is the way my, I, I sort of tricked my business school students into thinking about um, policy as a choice of whether to raise or lower the federal funds rate today or not. A sequence of one-shot policy actions, in other words. The reason it makes the sense to think of policy this way is because expectations about future inflation and thus future policy play such a key fundamental role in decisions people make today. An immediate corollary of that is the importance of credibility. Because low and stable inflation today uh, requires that people believe inflation will be low and stable in the immediate future. And it deserves emphasis again 
that credibility means giving up some flexibility in the future. Another immediate corollary is the value of central bank communications, especially communications that helping people understand the likely future outcomes for inflation. This value of communications is what has led several central banks to announce explicit numerical objectives for inflation. The broad message I want you to take away from this, however, is that just as central banks are now widely acknowledged to be responsible for the behavior of inflation, they are just as responsible for the behavior of inflation expectations because expectations are central to inflation dynamics and they depend on what people think policy is going to do. Related to this, central banks should not take expectations for granted by acting in ways that are inconsistent with those expectations without taking into account the possibility that those expectations may change as a result. An example of this, some economists have detected a decline in persistence of inflation. That is, to the extent to which inflation today is correlated with inflation a year or two ago or, you know, a year or two from now. One might be tempted. Now, this is this, the flip side of this is that inflation is more likely to, if it swings away from trend, to return to trend. One might be tempted as a policymaker to rely on this reduced persistence to say, well, inflation is more likely to return to trend now, so we need to do less. This neglects the likelihood that that reduction in persistence reflects the fact that policymakers respond more aggressively now and bring inflation back to trend more rapidly. So that reduction in persistence could be because of policy and to fail to act consistent with those expectations underlying that reduced persistence could cause that reduced persistence to erode and revert. This modern Phillips curve is particularly relevant to the dilemma I pose for my business school students. That is, for evaluating alternative policy strategies for restoring price stability. Would reducing inflation require large increases in unemployment? Again, the key is the behavior of inflation expectations, which now seem to hover between 2 and 2.5%, two and a, a bit below inflation itself, and somewhat higher than rates consistent with price stability. One might be pessimistic about the Fed's ability to reduce inflation below 2% without significant increases in unemployment if one takes the current level of inflation expectations as given. On the other hand, a strategy of clear and forceful communications about policy intentions, if successful, can change inflation expectations, can bring inflation and inflation expectations down at significantly less cost than otherwise. In this case, a more rapid return to price stability could be achieved and would require less unemployment and less policy tightening than would otherwise be the case. How responsive are inflation expectations to policymaker influence? I think general prescriptions on this, general answers are going to be unlikely because results are going to depend on the nature of central bank communications and the actions that accompany them and the context in which they are received. There are many examples, though, of significant shifts in expectations induced by convincing people of a break from past practice. Examples include the fiscal reforms accompanying the ends of hyperinflation that I mentioned earlier, the operational regime shift adopted by the Volcker FOMC in 1979, 
and the adoption of explicit inflation objectives by several foreign central banks. In many recent instances in the U.S., Federal Open Market Committee actions or statements have induced short-run movements in market participants' expectations regarding the path of the federal funds rate and inflation. Notable examples would include the middle of 2003, the fall of 2005, and the spring of 2006. These stand out. Although there may be no precise historical analogs for potential communications and actions to restore price stability in circumstances very much like the present day, these examples suggest, to me at least, that significant inflation, that policymakers can have a significant effect on inflation expectations. In any case, the centrality of inflation expectations in the modern Phillips curve reinforces the importance of consistency and credibility in monetary policymaking, since these are traits that reduce the public's uncertainty about future policy and stabilize expected inflation. Central banks should not underestimate, in my view, the degree to which they are capable of influencing the evolution of inflation expectations. To paraphrase the late Milton Friedman, you'll recall he got the Nobel Prize, inflation is always and everywhere an expectational phenomenon. To put it another way, inflation expectations are an outcome of monetary policy, not an autonomous helper hindrance. Central banks are as responsible for the behavior of inflation expectations as they are for the behavior of inflation. That recognition is the key to sound monetary policy. Again, let me thank you for having me uh, to hear speak to you today. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, I've enjoyed doing it.